Okay, hi everybody. Welcome to Ancient Heroes. I am here today with Professor Colin Elliott, who is an economic and social historian with a specialty in ancient Rome. He's an associate professor at Indiana University, and he's the author of the upcoming book, Pax Romana, The Plague That Shook the Roman World, which I believe is available for pre-order now and comes out in 2024. Um, So hi, Professor. It's great to have you on. Hey, Patrick. Um, Thanks for uh, letting me come on. Should be fun. Of course. Of course. Um, I guess my first question that that I like to ask my guests is just a little bit about their history and how they wound up studying what they are studying. So what drew you to become an expert in ancient Rome? Sure. I'll give you the short version of that, which is I took a introduction to kind of pre-modern history uh, when I was at the University of Oregon as a first-year student. And I had studied the Roman Empire just a little bit in, you know, kind of public school background that I had, but not a lot. And I was just totally amazed by this world where, you know, a good chunk of the Mediterranean was united and beyond. And there were cities that, you know, you could travel from one end of the empire to the other. There was coinage moving around. Uh, The stories of the people that lived in this world really captured me, whether it was particular emperors, Augustus, Marcus Aurelius, but also kind of the fall of the Roman Republic. So these were stories that really embedded themselves in my, uh, you know, in my young adult uh, mind. And I just found them so interesting. And then from there, it was just a matter of seeing what I could do to keep learning about this world. And so you know, I was initially doing this as kind of a hobby after I finished my degree and I was working in other areas. And then I thought, well, why not give this a try and see if I can actually do what I love? That's advice that sometimes you're given is that if you can do what you love and try to get paid for it. And that's what I did. And just roll of the dice, uh, things worked out for me, basically, and managed to get uh, a great supervisor for a PhD, uh, had a lot of support then in my early career and managed to land at a great university like Indiana University, a supportive department. And that's enabled me to just continue to be that person that I was as a first year college student and study the Roman Empire, learn about it, write about it now, which is really fun. I'm actually producing the kind of knowledge that I myself was really interested in back as a first year college student. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I saw that you were described as an economic and social historian. So I'm a little bit curious about that um, specific uh, area of of history and what that means. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about um, that focus that you've had? Sure. I was interested in economics around the same time that I was interested in ancient history. And when I looked into what it would mean to be an economist, for example, there was a lot of math. I'm not a huge fan of math. And so I realized that I could actually study the economic history of the Roman Empire. I could look at things like money and trade Mm -hmm. and how the empire was connected and some of the ways in which it became disconnected. And So this enabled me to kind of craft a PhD program when I did that, 
that just allowed me to uh, look at research questions that were all about those sorts of topics. And that is really what has continued to interest me. And that includes the more recent interest in things like diseases, because diseases have a, few, a huge impact on uh, how societies are connected. And of course, then vice versa, the connectivity of societies influences the extent to which they experience diseases in different ways. And so there's just been an ongoing interest of mine in basically how people interact, how they engage with each other uh, across cultures, across regions, across time, even in some respects. And I think economics also helps us get to questions of cause and effect. I think historians are really interested to know, like, is is this phenomena that I'm observing, are, are these phenomena the effects of something? Or is there something deeper and these are just symptoms? And I think doing economic and social history helps you answer those questions and also helps you better understand the people themselves that were engaging in all of this activity that we study in the ancient world. Mm. Wow, interesting. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you if you've encountered the new TikTok trend <laughs> around um, women asking their significant others it, how much they think about the Roman Empire. I think that's what it is. Yeah. Has anybody asked you that? Have you <laughs> encountered that at all? Yeah. So, uh, first of all, you know, we ancient historians aren't often having. Uh, opportunities to be kind of in the mainstream kind of popular culture. And so, of course, every ancient historian, every Roman historian is very aware of this trend. And I'm sure there are think pieces that have already been written or being written about it. But yeah, I was asked by my colleagues at Indiana University once this trend was happening, well, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? And of course, the answer is every day. I have to think about <laughs> it all the time. In fact, in some some days, I wish I could escape uh, from having to think about the Roman Empire. But uh, I love what I do, and I'm really glad that I get to think about the Roman Empire. I do think it's worth asking also, how should we think about the Roman Empire? Because when you look at the way that people tended to answer that question, you know, it was often things like, yeah, I think about how the Roman Empire had roads, and I was thinking about this as I was driving along the road to work, or, you know, I was thinking about how the Roman Empire had Colosseum or how the Roman Empire had bread and circuses and, you know, th thinking about a lot of ways in which there are maybe parallels or similarities. But the thing that I tend to think about the Roman Empire, and I'm just sort of amazed by this the more I study it, is actually how different it was than modern society. I mean, human beings, there are things about human beings in all times and places that are the same, but the Roman Empire was a really unique thing in history and its culture was unique. It's a pre-Christian empire, obviously, prior to Christianity kind of being publicly acceptable. That makes some big differences. It's views on religion. Even the economy is very, very different. I mean, going back to your earlier question, one of the questions that it really interests me is how do you study an economy like that of the Roman Empire when there were not the kinds of economic institutions that we have today? We don't have some of the... Um, uh, you know, some of the ideas that come out of capitalism, for example, those don't really exist prior to the Roman Empire because capitalism isn't really yet a thing. And so the Roman Empire is very, very, very different. And I just get, I'm quite amazed by that. And so, you know, it's not only that I think about the Roman Empire every day, but I often am amazed at how different it was. Wow. 
Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your book, Pax sure. Romana, The Plague That Shook the Roman World. What was your goal in taking on this subject? Wow. So initially, I was teaching a class at a university called Washington and Lee University, and it was a class for undergraduate students, a seminar class that was just on catastrophes in the ancient world. And that actually put the Antonine Plague on my radar. The other thing that put the Antonine Plague on my radar, this in the book, The Plague That Shook the Roman World, the other thing that put it on my radar is when I finished my PhD, uh, one of the examiners for that PhD said, hey, you should start thinking about how this uh, epidemic influ influenced some of what you're talking about in your PhD thesis, which at the time was kind of the way that money worked in the Roman Empire. Uh, so those are two ways that it came on my radar. And so I started uh, looking into this this plague, this 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 pandemic, what I what I believe was a pandemic, right around the time of Marcus Aurelius, and it lasts for a decade, maybe two decades. And the more I studied this disease outbreak, I was at first kind of convinced that historians are making too big of a deal of this, and my angle was sort of, I think we need to pull back on the uh, catastrophism, I guess we might say, uh, you know, associated with this disease. It really wasn't that bad. And then once the uh, coronavirus pandemic started in 2020, people were very interested in historic examples of pandemics. And so there was a uh, the publisher of the book, Princeton University Press, actually reached out to me. I had I had not uh, had any contact with them about a book proposal or anything, but they reached out to me and said, "Hey, we we're we know that you've done some work on this plague, the Antonine Plague. Uh, would you be interested in thinking about how your research might fit into a book?" And so, in writing that book, I had to look at all of the evidence for the Antonine Plague in some ways that I hadn't before. I had to think more about the context in the Roman Empire during this pandemic. And I increasingly came to the conclusion that, yeah, actually, this disease really mattered in many respects, and it had a complicated relationship with the Roman Empire. And so the book almost wrote itself as I was, uh, you know, kind of sh shut in my house for a period of time and had to give my classes online. So what are you going to do when you're in a situation like this, and there's a pandemic raging around you? Well, you just uh, take the time to write about this, this pandemic in the Roman Empire. And so this this book was basically just cranked out in a in about a year and a half of intensive research and writing. Wow. Wow. Well, so can you set the stage a little bit um around what was what was the Roman Empire like and kind of what was going on when this uh plague or pandemic first started to break out? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd say this is one of the major arguments of the book. You have some historians that would say that this period of time, the Pax Romana, P-A-X, the Roman peace, is really the height of Roman prosperity, economic power, military power. And on the one hand, I wouldn't dispute that, but I think at the same time, we can kind of overdo it and we can suggest that that means the Roman Empire was sort of invulnerable. That means that uh, it was so robust and powerful and resilient that it would be able to withstand 
some of the disease events and other biological events, climate changes, other things that happen that come in from outside the Roman Empire. And so what the book argues about this question that you've asked about is that actually we first have to understand that the Roman Empire, uh, during even during the Pax Romana, is quite a bit more fragile than we would have thought. There are a variety of reasons for this, economic reasons and social reasons, to get into some of my other uh, research areas. The Roman Empire is connected, but it's connected largely through the state. That is, the Roman military is uh, creating demand in one part of the Roman Empire that then another part of the empire is satisfying, and not largely through means of like market activity and supply and demand and that sort of thing, but through the state uh, using its power to take from one group of people or one region and and sending those resources over to another group in another region, namely the, the military. There's slave labor that's abundant in the Roman Empire, which is not a really economically efficient form of labor. Uh, mm-hmm. You have uh, basically an empire that uh, well, okay, you've got shipping and road networks, um, which on the one hand make trade easier, but it also allows for diseases to move more quickly and to spread more rapidly through the Roman Empire as well. So in some ways, it's a bit of a paradox because the things, the the aspects of the Roman Empire at this time that make it look very strong and resilient and robust, at the same time, make it susceptible to a new disease that's particularly contagious and deadly, uh, that is going to be a big problem in this world. And that's, in my view, exactly what happens when the Antonine Plague comes in. Okay, so this is happening, am I right to say in the second half of the second century AD, this starts to begin? Yeah, that's right. And historians, I would say, are largely in agreement that the Antonine Plague this this whatever disease it was was inside the Roman Empire by around 165 AD. So Marcus Aurelius has only been in charge with his co-emperor Lucius Verus for about four years, and then he gets this huge test uh, where this disease infects his soldiers, the soldiers of Lucius Verus over in the Parthian Empire. And then gradually in uh, in several major cities, including Rome, there are these huge epidemic outbreaks and nobody knows what this disease is. Uh, nobody knows how to treat it, obviously, uh, with ancient medicine being the way that it is. And it's very difficult to explain how a disease is reaching the entirety of the Romans known world. You have to understand that uh, up until this point, the view of epidemics is lar- is that they are largely localized. They affect a particular region or a particular city. And mm-hmm. they're usually the result of some kind of local impiety, uh, that the diseases are caused by not worshiping the gods correctly. Somebody uh, or some group of people have done some kind of sacrilege, and this has brought the wrath of, of the gods upon them. And so now... In 165 AD, under Marcus Aurelius, you get a disease that is affecting a lot of different parts of the Roman Empire. So what are people supposed to make of this thing? This is something that's very, very new and quite frankly, a bit scary for the Romans. 
So I heard, I read in the introduction that this, some people consider this to be the first pandemic. Can you talk a little bit about, you've used the term plague, pandemic. I know that there were other examples in ancient times before this, where there were outbreaks of something going on. So, and you may have already addressed this a little bit, but can you just talk about how you think about these differences and definitions and things? That's a really good question. And in fact, I've probably been a little sloppy already in the way that I speak about this. And some of my if some of my colleagues hear this, they'll they'll be wagging their fingers at me. So yeah, it's it's tricky because the Antonine Plague is called the Antonine Plague. But in the most specific terminology, plague is a particular um a disease outbreak, a bacterial disease outbreak that we associate with, say, the Justinianic plague or bubonic plague. Right? It's it. Plague is a particular kind of mm. uh, of outbreak. So the name Antonine plague is a little bit problematic, but uh, we also do have a secondary meaning of plague, which is just a just a disease outbreak. Like we do, we do have that in our vernacular. So I think sometimes colleagues are being a little persnickety when they get too hung up on the word plague. And then, yes, you mentioned the idea of a pandemic and also an epidemic. So epidemic is a an outbreak of a disease, uh, which is especially, especially virulent, right, that, that spreads pretty quickly and that has pretty devastating effects, including high mortality in some cases. So that would be an epidemic. And then a pandemic tends to be, I mean, the definition here, uh, I think is different depending on context and time. I mean, I don't remember the who has a particular WHO has a particular definition of what a pandemic is, but typically it's a, an epidemic, an outbreak of disease that spreads through multiple regions. And it is an open question as to whether the Antonine plague counts as Mm -hmm. an epidemic or is it a pandemic? This was one of the things that I changed my mind on as I actually did the research for the book. Prior to writing the book, I would have likely leaned towards the idea that this was not a true pandemic. But as I looked at more and more evidence, especially from outside of the Roman Empire, I found that, okay, while it's true, we don't have detailed descriptions of symptoms in, say, China or the Kushan Empire in Central Asia, or you know, or descriptions of disease from uh, 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 Arabia, the the, the uh, Arabian Peninsula, which is another place where we see a disease outbreak around the same time. But it does seem like there is a burst of epidemics during this period, right around, as you said, the middle of the second century A.D until about the end of the century. Now, some of those certainly are not connected. I, I Obviously, that's definitely going to be the case. But the sheer amount of these outbreaks and the fact that they occur at similar times, and even though we don't have disease descriptions for all of these outbreaks, the death rate, there are some similarities about claims in the ancient sources about the death rate. There are some similarities and claims about seasonality, again, not by no means for all of them, but for a few of them, such that I feel comfortable, and especially if we just even look at the spread in the Roman Empire. We have we have Egypt being affected, we've got the um, the Near East being affected, Asia Minor, uh, Italy, uh, maybe, but not confirmed, 
Gaul, and also the island of Great Britain. So even within the Roman Empire, there's quite a bit of spread, which makes me suspect that at least some of the outbreaks that we read about in, say, China and uh, the Arabian Peninsula probably are related. Hmm. So that's kind of where that comes in, the idea that this is probably a pandemic. Okay. That was that was quite a complex question, and that was a great answer. Oh, good. Um, so can you give us an idea about what what kinds of evidence you were relying on to try to piece together how the disease was spreading and what was happening? Um, were they eyewitness accounts? Were they census? What, what were you trying to, uh, what did you have at your disposal to try to use? Yeah, it's really challenging. And there's a reason why nobody has written a book on this pandemic yet, because the evidence is really questionable. That is, on the one hand, we have literary accounts. So we have accounts from Romans themselves writing near the time, or in some cases within a century or two of this pandemic. And they're describing it in these almost catastrophic terms, right? That that the entire army was destroyed or entire cities were laid waste. And they use that kind of language. But then in the archaeological record, uh, uh, papyrus documents, uh, coinage, pottery shards at different sites, those sorts of things. Eh, I mean, maybe there's something going on, but maybe there isn't. And if there is something going on, it has multiple explanations that are available to draw from. Like the, the evidence doesn't, the non-literary evidence doesn't just tell us why it is the way that it is. And so, yeah, that was a real challenge in reconstructing basically all aspects of this disease, like where it went, how deadly it was, who it affected, what the response was to it, what its larger effects were, because the signal in the evidence is very confused. So I used as much evidence as I could. And what the book tries to do is rather than just find the plague story that's possible in each bit of evidence and go with that, I really focus on each piece and try to look at the different stories that you could draw from this evidence and maybe how it compares with other evidence. And I really show the reader kind of how historians do this kind of thing. And what you end up with is a picture of a pandemic. I think you do see that this is a pandemic, but it doesn't appear to be as deadly in and of itself as we might expect when we hear the word pandemic, that just makes us think of something really severe and deadly. Actually, the Antonine Plague doesn't look that way, at least to me. But what it does look like from the evidence is that people got real scared because of the, the newness of the way that this affected everything. And so that's really what you see in the evidence. You see a lot of panic. You see evidence of uh, things being shut down. For example, you've got uh, a series of coins in minted in the city of Rome, and you've got kind of regular coin output in these coins every year during the 160s. And then when you get to the year after 165, 166 and 167, there's a big stoppage in coin minting. That's just an aberration. And then and then from the year after that, it just picks right up. And so you could explain that a lot of different ways. You could say, well, maybe there's a metal shortage. Well, um, maybe there was just something going on with the mint that maybe there was uh, some mint workers that went on strike that does occasionally happen in the Roman empire. 
you know, what what exactly is the cause? There's there are wars happening that are kind of ending and starting. Maybe that's the cause. So you have to solve those kinds of problems with the evidence in order to make sense of this pandemic. But I think uh, using well, what's basic, what, what's sometimes called the wigwam approach to evidence, which is you have a lot of different types of evidence that are like poles of a of a of a wigwam, and okay, maybe each individual piece of evidence you could dispute, you could critique it, you could say it doesn't it doesn't mean what you think it means, but when you find a lot of evidence that seems to generally lean the same way, almost like the poles on a wigwam, where if you can. If you can attach them all together, they actually do form a coherent structure. I think that's what we see with the Antonine Plague, is that you can find alternative explanations for bits of evidence. Again, whether it's a census record, whether it's coin evidence, whether it's pottery shards. But you have to you have to notice that there's a lot of disruption around this time in the Roman Empire and this pandemic maybe isn't directly behind all of it, but does seem to be at least in the background of what's going on. It does have an influence on the Roman economy, Roman society, Roman politics, perhaps even, especially also maybe Roman religion. So yeah, it's a complicated topic and the evidence is a bit murky, but I think a case can be made. And I've tried to make that case with the book and hopefully readers will find it compelling. Wow. So it sounds like it was a pretty widespread and impactful pandemic, but it wasn't as deadly as something like the Black Death or something where a third of people are dying or whatever the number is. Um, uh, wow. Well, I mean, I, I think people can probably relate to that listening to this, yes. having lived through exactly COVID. Um, yes. So um, it impacted everything. Many, many people did die but society also kind of had to find a way through it. It didn't, you know, um, we weren't just all, it wasn't mass chaos for, for two years. So, um, yeah, wow. in fact, I think the parallels are pretty fascinating and I've tried to write the book in such a way that it's not a product of its time in that. I hope that people who, you know, are in the future who did not experience the COVID-19 pandemic would not find the book, dated, you know, but at the same time, as I was writing this book, there was no question, like as people were freaking out, you know, about COVID um, and we're, we keep, we kept learning over and over again that our mortality estimates for that disease were way higher than that disease actually was. And right. It's almost like each, each month, if you were reading the scholarly literature on the disease, which I was, um, you know, it goes from 5% to 3% to 1% to half a percent to one-tenth of a percent and down even below that. And that was actually didn't take that long. But because this thing was so new, right, and it was very scary, and uh, you, you could visibly see the imp the the way in which people were responding to the disease. I mean, you physically couldn't see people's faces. Right. You you know, people were staying in their houses. We were all taking meetings on Zoom if we did meetings. Many people were working on Zoom. I mean, whether or not the disease was was deadly, there was a point at which that didn't matter anymore because society had effectively reached a point where the the kind of feeling of the disease, the fear of the disease 
became almost more dominant than the reality, yeah. like the biological reality of the disease. And I think there are some parallels there with what happens with the Antonine plague. It's something that's novel. It's new. Uh, it affects some of the people that would be most visible in terms of, uh, you know, like, like folks like the Roman military, right? When soldiers are dying of something, people take notice when it affects cities as opposed to the countryside. That's where the elites live. And it also affected the elites as well. We have elites that die of the Antonine Plague. Now, does it matter that it wasn't 30% of the population, that it may have been more like one, two, three percent of the population? Well, I mean, it does in a kind of objective sense, but in terms of like the subjective fear that would have been generated among elites, realizing that they too were vulnerable to this disease. They couldn't just see that the elites in Rome would just head out during the summer because there are a bunch of diseases that would crop up every summer in Rome. They would try to go out to a country villa to escape those diseases. But this disease could not be escaped. Again, doesn't matter in a sense how deadly it is. It's the fact that it could strike anybody anywhere. And that gave it a kind of power that elicited then a kind of panic. And so the book is as much about the disease as it is about these wider uh, kind of social, subjective, almost even psychological effects of the first pandemic in world history. And that's that that psychological side. And I know that's got to be hard to get to without actually reading eyewitness, you know, contemporaneous accounts or something like that. But can you can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, if we're in an era where there's a Roman religion, a pagan kind of Roman religion, and are, were they associating um, religious causes to the pandemic as far as you can tell or yeah. How, how, what was that like in sort of not even having germ theory yet and different right. things? Like what was their take on all of this? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I'll just give one example. Uh, there is a kind of almost messianic figure, a kind of healer, a folk healer. Uh, his name is Alexander, and he is kind of running around and gaining popularity even before the Antonine Plague in Asia Minor. And he gets some notoriety because he has this uh, pet snake. And maybe it was a real snake. Maybe it was a paper mache snake. Nobody really knows. But he would use this snake to give people prophecies and give them like uh, instructions for healing themselves of various disease. So for guys like this, the Antonine Plague was uh, just a phenomenal uh, was great for them. It made their career. So this guy, Alexander, and we have an eyewitness account about him from a writer named Lucian of Samosota. And Lucian tells stories about this guy, Alexander, how he would tell people, well, look, the Antonine Plague can be cured if you just uh, write down these sacred words that I'm going to give you about Apollo. And you just write them down on your doorposts um, you 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 keep them in places, and this will uh, make sure that you don't get the disease. And it's interesting because Lucian, in criticizing this guy, this kind of charlatan Alexander, says, "Well, people did this, and of course it didn't work. 
because what happened was now again they don't understand germ theory but they do understand basic contagion mm -hmm. so what lucian says is well the people that wrote this just thought they were going to be fine and so they just went about their daily business and they didn't really take any precautions and of course they often got sick but we know that alexander's uh cures these incantations and these magic words that he said would cure people of plague we know that people believed him and were panicked enough to do so because we find those words not just in the eyewitness account we find them at the base of statues in cities in asia minor where they had erected uh, statues for example to apollo and then they put alexander's magic words on them we even find his words as far away as the island of great britain there was a, an amulet that was found uh, near the River Thames, I think just in the foreshore, just in the water, the, the the shore just below the surface. And it was an amulet likely dated to the, the time of the Antonine Plague. And it has those magic words in them. So somebody all the way over in uh, Roman London was panicked enough about the Antonine Plague that they decided to use those magic words. So that would be an example of some evidence both literary evidence, but then also corresponding archaeological evidence that gives us a sense that there might have been some real panic going on at the same time. Yeah. Wow. It's what I'm thinking. I just read an article about, I believe, whoever created the vaccines for COVID got the Nobel Prize. I or saw something that. Like right. That. right. <laughs> I saw that. And so on a technological standpoint today, you know, we're creating vaccines and things. We're so much more advanced. But the human psychology of all yes. of this is exactly the same. It is. I mean, there's so many parallels to what all the debates happening that are still yeah. ongoing, but, you know, and now people going back and relitigating. And I mean, but it really just the human nature aspect is. Yep. Uh, it, still it, it does not change at all. And while we don't have, again, the evidence for the Antonine Plague is a bit scattered. But what I find interesting is in the next big epidemic in the Roman Empire, which is the Plague of Cyprian, it's around that same time. So you get, again, the Plague of Cyprian looks like it might also be a pandemic. Hmm. But at that exact same time as that's going on, you get this order fr straight from the top, from the Roman emperor himself. And this is uh, 249, 250, 251, mid third century AD. And the emperor says, look, uh, we need everybody, we need all hands on deck uh, right now. We need everybody to sacrifice to the gods. No excuses, no religious exemptions. Everybody's got to uh, do their part. We're all in this together and we got to fight this uh, you know, all the chaos that's happening. Now, um, there was a lot more going on than just the, the pandemic, but it was a it was a period of crisis in many ways. And what he does is he requires every single Roman citizen, which is everybody in the Roman Empire at this point, to sacrifice to the gods. And they actually have to carry around a piece of paper that shows that they have performed sacrifice and they have to have a witness sign it and they have to sign wow. it themselves. I mean, now again, there are some there are some kind of superficial parallels to that with what happened in COVID. But I think to get to your point, what we're seeing is a society that when societies get afraid, they want certainty. They want to know what is, you know, how things have gone wrong and what they need to do to get out of the anxiety, right? Fear produces anxiety and angst and 
uh, and terror even, right? And so that part of our brain kicks in that just wants to get out of that, right? And so what we're looking for is some form of certainty, which can easily evolve into who do we need to blame? Who needs to be punished, right? Mm -hmm. And so even though in today's society, we would not say, uh, you know, burn witches at the stake kind of thing. I don't think that was necessarily proposed, but there were some pretty radical uh, ideas that were proposed about people that weren't perceived as adequately doing their part yeah. during COVID that I, I'd like to hope will, if not now, hopefully in the not too distant future, be looked at and like, hey, should we really have done that? Because that was a bit out of line, like wishing death on people because they didn't wear a mask or didn't take a medical product. Uh, is that really the way that uh, a civilized society should behave? And I think even in the ancient Roman Empire, again, under their cultural ideas, right, where, where religious uh, impiety is the cause of disease, they're engaging that same part of the brain, right? They are looking for people to punish. And I don't think it is a coincidence that we see some huge persecutions of Christians, actually, during the same time as the Antonine Plague. In fact, the very first mass murder of Christians, that I, that at least that I know of, occurs in the late 170s in the city of uh, Lugdunum, which is modern Lyon in France, uh, around 50 men, women, and children that were Christians uh, are butchered and killed. Now, we have no source that says this was because of fear of the plague. We don't know that. And I don't feel comfortable necessarily saying that. But you can't help but put that together with a lot of the other evidence that we see yeah. from the same time and get the impression that people are kind of freaking out in the Roman Empire, especially in cities and even among the elite. And again, these are the parts of the world where uh, this disease had run rampant. And even if it wasn't the direct reason, I feel like the atmosphere gets dialed up when people yeah. are fearful and panicked, you know, even something that might not be directly associated. If someone's acting inappropriately on any level, yes. it might cause a stricter kind of um, <laughs> reaction. Um, yeah. Wow. There's a, there's a sociologist, his name is Frank and I don't want to butcher his last name, uh, Ferretti, I think is his name. And he wrote a book in 2019, uh, which unfortunately people didn't read as closely as they should, called How Fear Works. He studies fear. And that's really what you just said is one of the major arguments in his book, uh, that people um, effectively adopt a kind of orthodoxy in mm. the way that they think about how to solve problems when they're afraid. They They want black and white solutions. They have trouble dealing with complexity. And that gets you, that gets people in like a thinking pattern where they, they begin to think that way about a lot of things. Right. And so suddenly in one area of life, which maybe doesn't even have anything to do with what they're afraid of, they, they import that kind of thinking, that fear-based, uh, orthodoxy, heresy, black and white, good, bad, dirty, clean, yeah. right, type of thinking, and they start applying it in a lot of different places. So you were researching this book and writing it during the lockdown phase yeah. of the pandemic. So what? how do you think this impacted your experience of the last uh, few years, especially those those days where we really were sort of 
stuck at home or, or, and whatnot. Um, you know, were, do you feel like it gave you a different perspective on it all? Were you able to kind of take a step back and see things a little bit differently? How did it impact you? Yeah, I actually, uh, I had to delete a lot, a lot of what I wrote some days because, you know, there were days where I was just uh, go, sitting down to write this book and I found myself just consumed by thoughts about what was happening around me. And as a historian, you obviously, you don't pretend that you're immune to what's going on. In fact, I think what you what you do is you acknowledge it. Like you say very plainly, like here is kind of my, my own perspective and here are my frames of reference. And you're, you're very open about that with your readers so they can make a decision themselves. So I didn't delete everything. And I think you can see hints in the book where it's clear that uh, I was thinking about yeah, like the panic that was going on around me and the persecution in some ways that was going on around me, the uncertainty, uh, the 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 questions about how to mitigate a disease that we really don't know how to mitigate. I mean, there were a lot of debates, right, about how do you actually treat this disease? Can it be treated? Uh, which treatments are good? Which treatments are bad? And that perspective was also useful, though. That context helped me look at the evidence in ways that I wouldn't have. Like, I don't know that I would have connected the dots on the the sense of panic or angst or anxiety in the Roman Empire. And I wouldn't have looked as hard for the effects of that. Because, you know, the whole COVID thing, I remember, you know, people would always say, you know, if you watched it on the media, well, COVID has shut down the schools or COVID has wrecked the economy or COVID has caused problems with learning. Um, but of course, that wasn't really like, like that's not really the way causality worked. The way that it worked is our reaction to, and again, may, well, I think at the time there was more debate about maybe this is justified. I think now in hindsight, I have to think that most people would say most of those things were not justified. But anyway, the point is, it wasn't really COVID that was doing those things. It was the way that we were trying to deal with COVID as a society. We were trying to say, what can we do collectively to stop this thing? And I think the Roman Empire, the, the Romans are trying to wrestle with those sorts of questions, not so much from a, like a collective public health standpoint, but certainly from an individual standpoint. And, and I mean, at the city level too, there are whole cities, for example, that are saying, okay, look, there's a plague in our city. What do we do about this? And you even get some inscriptions in some of these cities in Asia Minor, for example, where the answer is not only we all have to sacrifice and we all have to perform various rituals, but we actually have to find people that aren't doing it. We, we have to look for people that aren't, uh, and those people should be made to suffer in various ways. And again, uh, so, so, you know, living through COVID, I think helped me make some of those types of connections, which I probably wouldn't have. And the good news is with a scholarly book like this, I have peer reviewers who then read the manuscript, right? And can say, hey, look, uh, you need to, like, you're going too far on this part, right? You're you're thinking way more about the contemporary context than you are about the ancient context. And so that was really valuable is to be able to have that uh, assurance of having expert readers come along 
and helped me figure out where the modern context of COVID helped me see some things and where it maybe clouded my judgment as well. And I think the end result is a book that is uh, innovative in that it thinks about this disease in new ways, in part inspired by what happened, but which isn't at the same time like preachy or dogmatic or you know, just sort of appropriating the ancient evidence to try to make contemporary claims about what happened in COVID. And I certainly have opinions about that, but this book really did not become the place where that happened. It's not 10 lessons from history uh, exactly. you know, or whatever, but I, exactly. but I am struck by, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Dalio. He's a hedge mm-hmm. fund. Um, he ran the world's largest hedge fund and now he writes all kinds of almost scholarly type um, articles and things about the cycles of economies and through history. And he's always making the point that economies basically have these cycles and civilizations have these cycles, but individuals don't see it because our lifetime is not yes. long enough to experience some of these things. So with like pandemics, I mean, gosh, I just have to imagine it would have been so helpful for the general public to have a working knowledge of the idea that pandemics have occurred. These are some of the pitfalls that societies can fall into the fear and the panic and different things like, and, you know, it's, it's just a very clear cut example of where historians like yourself have such an important role to play in our society um, so that we're not just basically limited to our 50 years perspective on things or or whatever it is. That's exactly right. And I think that would be the case in the ancient past too. So I mentioned as to how poor and challenging the evidence for the Antonine Plague is, but I actually think that we probably still nevertheless know more about the Antonine Plague as a kind of global, from like a big picture perspective, than the people even that went through it in many ways understood. Mm -hmm. We've got ways of analyzing diseases. We understand economics. We understand human psychology. We understand religion and uh, religious thinking in ways, anthropology. Like We understand these things in ways that the Romans couldn't have even dreamed. And even if we don't have as much evidence as we'd like, we get a longer term and a wider lens of a perspective on uh, this pandemic. And I think that's what the book is really trying to accomplish. It's really trying to give this holistic view of what that period looked like and how disease is incorporated into, is both a, an effect, has an effect on that society and also is itself affected by that society. And I'm sure, and I'm, I hope that when people look back on what we all experienced that there will be some of those types of perspectives. Hey, let's put a bunch of different stuff together and try to make an evaluation, which is not just purely focused on this one narrow thing, right? And and hopefully that helps us learn our lesson that actually, yeah, historians are really important during a pandemic. Like we actually, that helps sober us. It helps us think more clearly about what has happened before, and it gives us guidance. Now, it might not give us practical lessons. It certainly doesn't. And I remember people tried to do that a little bit with the Spanish flu, like the the masking thing that came out with the Spanish flu. And I just don't think that was really the lesson. Um, you know, so we we should use history to understand exactly what you said. These, the you know, 
that that diseases are going to be with us. Like, how do we respond as a society? How do we respond as individuals? How can we be more peaceable? How can we be more tolerant? How can we be vigilant about the things that matter without sacrificing the things that make us human, without dehumanizing other mm. people, right? These are things that history really gives us a good perspective on. And if we neglect that, just so that we can do whatever we need to, to just not feel panicked and stop this disease, um, we're not going to do a very good job of that. And I have to say, you know, it seems like that was unfortunately the story of what happened in, in 2020, 2021, you know, even parts of 2022. Mm. Well, I'll remind listeners that today we're talking to Colin Elliott, uh, who is a historian with an upcoming book, Pax Romana, The Plague That Shook the Roman World. I also wanted to give you a chance to tell us a little bit about your podcast, um, which uh, is also on the Roman Empire. So can you tell listeners a little bit about your podcast and what, what you're doing with that project? Sure. So when I finished the book, uh, I didn't, I, I'm one of these terrible people that just can't have free time. I just, I just don't know what to do. And so when I finished writing this book and like all the editing process was done and all that, and that all happened this summer, I was like, well, what can I do with this time that I'm going to have? And I, I've been teaching Roman history for a long time now. I love doing it. I get great engagement with students, but I've always wanted to bring what I do in the classroom to a wider audience and to test out some of these ideas. And Pax Romanica does that too. And so I decided to start a podcast about the Pax Romana, Pax Romana, the P-A-X Romana, the Roman peace. And so this podcast basically tells the story of what happens from the death of Julius Caesar. And I think I'm going to go about 100 episodes or so. We'll see how long it takes me. But it's going to be kind of a fixed term, almost like an audiobook of a podcast where it just kind of goes through the story for a, a popular audience uh, from the death of Caesar, probably until just after the death of Commodus. So we'll look at emperors, obviously. We'll look at uh, major wars. We'll talk about money. We'll talk about evidence. And uh, the podcast also tends to be source-driven. So the other aim of it is to bring some of the sources that I would put in front of my university students, uh, you know, ancient Roman accounts from 2,000 years ago, and give those to the general public so that they can see how those inform the types of stories that we tell. So they can kind of look under the hood a little bit and see how history works. So it's kind of a unique podcast in that it tells the story, but it also kind of shows people how the story is told at the same time. And it's been successful. And I'm very pleased to see that the numbers keep going up for listeners. So yeah, if, if folks on your podcast are interested in catching that too, it's it's Pax Romana podcast, P-A-X-R-O-M-A-N-A podcast.com, or you can find it on any podcast app. Awesome. Awesome. I can imagine that listeners of this podcast will be interested. Um, and I definitely am. The way you are describing it sounds great that it's it's the narrative, but it's also what's behind the narrative and how it's how you're figuring this stuff out as well. And that's a lot of times what I'm interested in too. Um, you mentioned Commodus, and it, it kind of connects back to the be beginning of our conversation. I have to admit that, and maybe it's because I haven't spent enough time with the Roman Empire, but when people ask me if I ever think about Rome or whatever, yeah, I'm you know 
I'm going right back to Gladiator. Okay. That movie came out when I was, I think, early teens or 10 years old or something like that. You're probably similar age to me. Yeah. It, right. It, I, I'm 35. So it, okay. it came yeah, out at a time. Okay. When I, I, you know, it blew my mind. I mean, it also, it's also, you know, it's a great movie. I know it's yeah. not necessarily accurate. No, but it's an awesome film. It really is. It's, um, it just made such an impression in the, in the beginning of it talks about the kind of the Roman empire being at its height and one in four people in the world lives under Roman rule or something like that. And so throughout the conversation, reading the introduction of your book, I'm kind of reminded of this time period. Yeah. And, um, wow. So yeah, I'm glad to hear that you like the movie as well. (laughs) Oh yeah. I love that film. And you know, Yes. I mean, any Hollywood film is going to take some liberties with the historical account. But the fact is, when you get when you when you become uh, an expert in something, you really learn that many of your expert colleagues and yourself. Right. We don't really know a lot of things. There's a lot that there's a lot more that we don't know than what we do know. And so, yes, you know, we can definitely say, well, I think we can reasonably say that, you know, Commodus didn't hold a pillow over Marcus Aurelius and that Marcus Aurelius was not going to uh, give the Senate back control of Rome, you know, after he died. So we can say these things probably aren't true. But from a storytelling perspective for the movie, right, what they're trying to do is set up Marcus Aurelius as kind of a more heroic, wise figure. And they're trying to show that Commodus is a villain from the very beginning. And so you understand why they take those liberties. And okay, yes, it teaches people a bit of bad history, but I don't think it's like uh, dangerous or something like that for for these liberties to be taken in order to tell a coherent story in a kind of Hollywood uh, film like that. Agreed. It it gets people interested as well. Um, Yeah. So, well, thanks for talking to me today. Are there anywhere... Um, else you can point our listeners to, to follow some of your work, like social media or website or anything like that? Sure. Apart from the Pox Romana podcast, people are welcome to follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's prof, C-P-E, P-R-O-F, C-P-E, on, well, Twitter, X, whatever Elon's calling it these days. Uh, I'll admit, like, some of what I talk about there is history, but I'm pretty into, into college football as well. So <laughs> I've been talking about college football on Twitter at the same time. But, you know, who knows? You know, I like meeting people. I like meeting people that are interested in history and and other things. So, yeah, catch me on Twitter. Uh, it would be good to uh, to get to know folks. And I hope that my uh, I'll look forward to telling my audience about your podcast as well, because I get, you know, you do interviews and it was really a treat i listened to your last interview with like adrian goldsworthy mm, get, a, yeah. get a chance to talk to a guy like that ask him questions his new book is great i mean you're able to get some really big historians on your podcast so i'm sure that that will be of interest to the folks that listen to my podcast too awesome yeah that'd be great it really is a privilege to get to talk to um everyone that i've been able to including you so Um, Thanks for coming on, Professor, and maybe in the future we'll get to talk again. I hope so, Patrick. This has been fun. Thank you to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Thanks for listening.